Today on Rolling with New York Mike. We need to do something. This is, this is a call to action. Pete Buttigieg says highways are racist. Are you going to you going to accept that? Highways are racist? Welcome to Rolling with the most patriotic man I know, my husband. And now his podcast, Rolling with New York Mike. Get on the ride. Okay, we're rolling. Yeah, we are. And you're rolling with New York Mike. Thanks for listening and being there. I know that I've not been consistent enough. When we started doing the podcast for years, it was like every Tuesday and every Thursday. And then, of course, the Thursday podcast would get out Friday over the weekend. And, and the Tuesday podcast, it was it was pretty cool. Around, and in, in the last few months, I, as I've gotten busier... I just cut down to once a week, which is fine. I haven't had a lot of complaints about it. Numbers vary. First they go down a little bit, and then then they start coming back. And then for the last few weeks, we're getting into the season. (laughs) Yeah, it's coming on, man. It's the end of April. Here we are. It happens so fast. But more importantly, the beginning of May. This is it. May is the month. That's how I see it. it. Used to be when I was state director of Abeda, California, May is Motorcycle Awareness Month, and we we used to have the big rally up in Sacramento at the Capitol every May, and I I really look forward to that. I always felt we were making an impact because we were. We were convincing one member of the assembly or the senate one at a time whether we were convincing their staff members and the people because we'd be up there we'd, we'd have a an abate board meeting in sacramento and you get up there, you get a lot of people and then the the boat people the bikers have lesser tolerance individually some friends of mine but collectively an organization i just think sabotaged any chance that we had of getting rid of the helmet law in California. They would come in after we would be there. This is just bikers up there trying to interact with the legislators, focus on biker issues, which is hard because everybody's got other things on their plate as well. You have to be careful, especially someone like me who has so much other stuff, who is a business owner and a veteran and you need both sides, and you need it. You need to be focused on exactly what you're working on. And we'd go up there and be focused on trying to be nice and politically, whatever, with the people who were against us. Yeah, we'd go up there and thank the people that were for us, helping get rid of this ridiculous helmet law. But the people who were against us, people that you had to work with, and we did. I mean, I remember. Talking to Willie Brown, man. Cool dude. He was the head of the Democrat. Everything. He was the man. And he'd glad hand you and he'd smile and he was friendly. He really was. And personable as hell. But he wasn't going to come on our side until until he had the weight of the Democrat Party pushing in that direction. Because he wasn't going to go against the grain. Just wasn't going to do it. So you learn the politics of it. And then you get friendly with the Willie Brown so that you can influence some of the other 
members of the Democrat Party who are basically, that's who's against you. We always had most of, if not all of the Republicans, and then none of a handful. Denise Duchesne was usually on our side and some of the others. But in, in any event, this was the month of May. And what happened was, you know, they they went from trying to change things legislatively to trying to get tickets and, and start lawsuits. And by the way, I got a couple of helmet tickets and I thought it was a good thing, but that wasn't what was going to change the law. Anyway, that's what happened. And I was outraged, by the way, when when that did happen and and they raised a bait raised couple of hundred thousand dollars to pay the lawyers. I don't know how much the Bolt guy got, whatever whatever his name was. I'll think of it, something with a Q. Richard Wibley or something like that. I, I don't know who got paid, who got what. But lawyers always get paid. But it just took it out of the realm of politics. And I keep on trying to impress on everybody how important politics is it reaches down into everything you do in your life into your your, in your home everything that you can do how you do it what you're allowed and not allowed to do so i'm glad to be able to kind of kind of switch back to talking about motorcycle issues which i just did (laughs) the old days of maybe a motorcycle awareness month and it still is and you know, in, in May, you, you have the motorcycle, um, the MRF, Motorcycle Riders Foundation, um, doing their uh, bikers in the beltway. Comes a little early in May because um, Rolling Thunder is Memorial Day. And it's, it's, it's you know, to, to ride into Washington from the West Coast like I do every year and get there early enough for bikers on the beltway. And I, I've done that before. And, and it is a a terrific idea. I mean, the MRF does a great job. And yeah, if I if I was able to do that, but you got to be able to stay in town. Back then, I I had so much to do in Washington that I had friends. I had friends I could stay with. Whether it was Washington, New Jersey, I could ride my bike up and down the coast. But to stay in D.C. And in a hotel for that length of time, it's crazy. And, um, you know, I never got paid for anything like that. And so it, it just it just wasn't going to happen. But I, I, I if there was something I, w- I would be able to do, I would I would go to Washington early on to do bikers in the Beltway and then do police week. Police week is also a great time to be in Washington, D.C. and celebrate, celebrate these cops who've you know gotten such a raw deal in america man how did that all happen boom just it shows you what pr and and politics that deadly combination can do and and it's um it's a serious declination of the culture in america that keeps on we keep on falling down this rabbit hole that the government seems to be able to be digging for us to fall into that's that's the way that's the government right now that's who's in charge you could stand there and wave the red flag of 
the Republican Party and say, oh, yeah, we're coming to the red, we're doing this. Well, right now, it's not about them, it's about us. It's about who we elect and who we want to have out there and who we want to celebrate. But this week, we're celebrating the Mount Soledad. That was such a battle for so long. From 1989, when Philip Paulson put in his lawsuit, you know, that was totally backed and supported by the ACLU, to tear down that memorial. And by the way, they said, no, it was just the cross that offended us. That was basically the memorial, and it was a memorial. And yes, the design was a cross. We could talk for days about that. The thing is, had they taken down the cross, there goes the memorial. And in the battle to save that memorial and to save that cross, what what we did on an ongoing basis was have events up there that saluted whatever military theme we were talking about, whether it was POW MIA Day in September, whether it was whatever the event was that people did or didn't celebrate before, now we were focused on making sure that we let these people know this is a war memorial. And it was ongoing every day. We'd be on the phone with each other, talk to each other. What are we going to do next weekend? I mean, I celebrated or remember the Alamo Day once on on the March 6th at some, at some point. We had a ton of bikers up there. And anything we can do and then somebody came came up with the the really bright idea of building these brick walls and putting plaques up that people could put up in honor of those who served family members whatever and when it was first proposed it sounded okay i don't think there was anybody actually against it we always have to consider the cost and, you know, there's a, a, a continuing and ongoing fundraising effort um, for Mount Soledad. And it's not easy to keep those, keep places like that going. But it's so important. And I played a big role in keeping that war memorial where is, as is, they like to say. And, of course, the as is part means keeping the cross. That's important. Don't want to reinvent that wheel. <laughs> We've talked about it many times before, but the importance of those walls, it, it's, it's ironic how something like the cross on Mount Soledad gets threatened. I mean, really threatened. We lose the court case. We spend tons of money defending and this and that. We're constantly attacked. We couldn't win anything. And what came of it? Go take a look at Mount Soledad. Take a look at what's been done. From the American flag to the to the walls with the names to whatever other more subtle improvements. But those walls. And, and we keep putting up more walls with those names and plaques with the pictures and the little stories about each person. There are over 7,000 plaques up on that. Now, I don't know what the ultimate number is that can be put up but i would think that's what we the creativity of the human mind what we can come up with what we could do i could envision walls up the whole area not just 
on the steps of the cross, which is where they are now, but even expanding that over the years because it has so much meaning. And I can't even imagine what the creative designs could be that could be accommodated on that now sacred ground. And it is sacred ground because it celebrates so many who actually gave their lives for this country. And so every year, and I'm going to tell the story about the Combat Controller reunions and maybe a little bit about the Combat Control, CCT. If you don't know it, I think I've probably spoken about it plenty on this podcast, but maybe not. So Combat Control is the, the Air Force equivalents of um, Special Operations Navy SEALs, MARSOC Marines, um, and... and, and it, it's with advancing warfare. I mean, I, I remember watching things like the bridge over the River Kwai. First time I heard about the British commandos and what they did was watching that movie. And it certainly piqued my interest. I said, wow, that's that's awesome. You know, that was kind of cool. It's also <laughs> it's also highly, highly dangerous and not not a little bit scary. It can be a lot of bit scary. And so you see what these guys do. And, and I don't know what we always talk, even back in the early 60s, when I first got in the Air Force with the promise of becoming an air commando, whatever that definition was, some sort of a, uh, a, a commando, not just a paratrooper, but something a little beyond that. And so you go in and... It's like the Pathfinders. There was a couple of other names that had been given to these Air Force guys. And then it came down to combat control, CCT. So I didn't, I don't even remember the definition, the wording CCT when we were going through the training. But it was difficult training compared to something more mundane. Nothing compared to what it is today. Yeah, we talked about the fact that to complete the training, one of the criteria had to go out and go into the submarine and get shot up the, more like rumor. We'd say, shot up the torpedo too? What are you talking about? Is that, oh yeah, you're going to have to go through that and you're going to have to go through this. But in today's world, combat swimming, scuba diving, these kind of things are... A, a training, it wasn't like there was a set out path. It was randomly like, okay, okay, you go to jump school and then you go to E&E, which is escape and evasion, which is now SEER training. And then you'd go to a different school. I remember having to go into the um, whatever simulator it was, uh, how many thousands of uh, whatever that's called. There was all, well, it would, it would just pop up. And, and you'd be going through your training, you go through Keesley Air Force Base, you learn about radios and, and then air traffic control for some of the guys, not all the guys. But it became much more organized. And when that happened, I don't know. When these guys transitioned from the random training to an actual school, a package, if you will, I don't know. But I don't think you could have become a combat controller, CCT, start to finish in the first four years of your enlistment. Maybe you could, but it was so random and unscheduled 
that came up when it came up. And I didn't know of any specific school that you got sent to with Pope or, or at Herbert Field or whatever. We would just go from place to place and do whatever training. But it became something much more focused and directed at some point. And you go through combat training, combat control, CCT training today, you're in a course that it seems to me is about a year long and it encompasses so much. I mean, from my radio school and then the ATV aircraft, whatever, it's handling the aircraft, coming in the actual formal training to do that. And then the jump school, the escape and evasion school, the halo training, the on and on and on. The, the, the training's intensive, but so, I mean, so was their job, using lasers. Now, when I went to Vietnam, it was a, a TACP, Tactical Air Command Party, which was people like me on jump status with this advanced training that we had, but I could bring in maybe two or three sorties. That's a jet with bombs <laughs> and and. 50 caliber machine guns that we would we would put on target and and you could do three most of you know was i think usually it was two i don't know if we had one but i'm sure we did especially with the 105s but yeah you if you had three you you that's a lot to work through and three these guys do 15 and 20 and maybe more but they're trained they have their training is, is, is all technical. They have, you know, advanced technology training I can't even think about. It's nuts, but it's awesome. At the same time, the physical training has really just expanded so that these guys are physical specimens that are, and I thought I was, by the way. I mean, I felt I was at the top of my game, maybe top of my game. But not what the game is today. I, I got a feeling. I, I mean, I think I'd be able to keep up physically, but not mentally. <laughs> when I say mentally, I mean intellectually. Mentally, I can push myself to do virtually anything. And I think I've proved that. But to learn, to have that intellect, I'm just a, I'm a bad student. I just am. But I pushed myself to get... And maybe I'd be pushing myself today. But I see what they do, and I'm in awe. I'm in awe. So every every week, every, no, I'm sorry, not every week, every year, combat controllers have reunions. Now, there's only 300 in, in the Air Force at any one time. They, they When they try to expand it to see the 600, as, as they call it, battlefield airmen, <laughs> they... They weren't successful. It's just, it's really hard to, it, it's such a, it's a hard job. I think the only harder job are the um, PJs, the parachute, the Air Force parachute jumps. Those are the, you know, you know the rescue guys. And and it, it's just a hard job. And it's hard to find people who volunteer, let alone who could get through the training process and graduate the school and become a bona fide CCT, a combat controller. So every year there's reunions. My friend Mark Devot, I, I think, I, I don't know how many years ago, I, I met this guy 
and we were talking and ran he was a a customer at san diego harley he came in he was riding some foreign bike and i was trying to sell him an american bike and he goes to a reunion in in in, in um at, at eglin and calls me up i was stationed with a guy named jim donaldson great guy i think i've talked about him before coolest dude in the world man and low-keyed you talk about low-key this guy defines low-key but he was he's just a super duper dude and so mark nevada is sitting there at this reunion talking to jim donaldson after he talked to me about being the combat control team for the 101st airborne in vietnam and my name comes up and jim goes oh that's i was with when he starts telling stories and boy we got a few and so nevada calls me and then that started me going to these reunions and i remember him driving me nuts to come to their reunion in las vegas at the end of the end of april and robert patrick and i are riding back from washington from rolling thunder i'm not i'm not certain what year it was had to be 10 years ago or more and the VOD calls as I'm, we're, we're at a stop. How many times has it happened? You're riding five, six, seven hundred miles every day. And when you stop, you get that phone call. And that's the one that, I don't want to say changes your life, but it certainly, <laughs> it's, it's the one that makes you turn left instead of right or going straight. And so... I get the phone call from Nevada, and he says, hey, Mike, we're at whatever hotel in Vegas. Of course, Robin and I had, had just come down off the um, 70 onto the 15. We're getting gas in Beaver, and I get the call, and he says, we're over here. We're at this the South Point Hotel or wherever it was, and I look at Robin, and I go, okay, we're going to stay in Vegas anyway. Let's go to this reunion. So we ride down, and three, four hours later, there we are at the combat. It was the first one I went to, and Robert Patrick is with me, and it was it was awesome. It was great. <laughs> so then, then Navad, who eventually buys a new Harley Davidson motorcycle from me, ta-da! <laughs> I love it. And, and he organizes what he calls the Loop Ride, a ride that that goes to their reunion in Vegas from San Diego, but loops around Orange County, whatever his loop ride, says he's loopy, he goes, <laughs> used to go to Big Bear, that was it, went from San Diego up to Big Bear, stayed in Big Bear, went so was it, whatever. So he puts his loopy ride together and tries to talk me into going on, and I actually did, and it was pretty cool. But what happens is these guys ride their Harleys in from wherever, and other guys out of the like 250, 300 that go to the reunion, other guys fly into Las Vegas, rent a Harley in Las Vegas, ride to San Diego to, you know, do a day or two in San Diego with all the guys, and then ride back to Vegas, go to the reunion, turn in the bikes, blah, blah, blah. So, anyway, here we are um, doing this doing this ride and it, it was a year ago 
Everybody comes in, either flies to Vegas, rents a bike, rides in, whatever. There's about 15. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it was kind of cool because they all stayed at Doug, Doug's house up in Alpine. <laughs> and so it was pretty cool. But, yeah, <laughs> it was a fun time. And they said, Mike, we're going to ride to Mount Soledad. So we did that, and they asked me to speak about this, you know, what was going on, the whole Mount Soledad story, which I did, and it, and it, it really inspired them. And the CEO... Sean, uh, the the retired Marine, was up there, and they decided it would be a great idea to dedicate a, a plaque to those combat controllers who have been killed since uh, whatever the inception. Um, and my friend Mark Navat, who is on the board of the Combat Control Association, took on that task. And so he's been working with Sean for the last year, working with the Mount Soledad Association. And the plaque has been made. Interesting. I think I've talked about this again. Um, I, I forget some of the things that, that I have talked about, but I, I, one of them was, and Mark called me up one day in his research on how many combat controllers have been killed. It's It's... it's Shocking that there were 51, and which is not shocking, because clearly it's a, it's it's a dangerous job. But what's shocking was out of the 51 killed, 26 were killed in training. And man, that just blew me away. Every time I think about it, it blows me out. It blows my mind. That's a that's just a crazy number. 26 out of 51. So. In any event, that the, the reunion is every end of April. And on this coming Wednesday, this week, May 26th, at 11 o'clock sharp, the dedication ceremony is going to start at Mount Soledad. Now, Petrina, my wife, created that plaque for me. And that was back in February. I think it was February 25th. And it, it was it was awesome. It was moving. People came in from all over the country, and I so appreciate it. It was a great day. And this year, it, it poured like crazy. <laughs> it rained all day. But uh, this should be just a, a, a bigger event. I know that the VFW is behind it. The American Legion is behind it. The Combat Veterans Motorcycle Club is is going to be there. I'm sure there's going to be booze fighters. I'm sure there's going to be other veterans clubs and organizations. I don't know if there'll be hundreds of people, but I'd, I'd be disappointed if there were less than 100. It's really, and I'm inviting you, uh, I'm hoping this podcast gets out there early enough in the week, but I'm inviting everybody that, you know, hears this and wants to come and show up. Uh, it's It's going to be... A, a respectful event. We have at least one Medal of Honor recipient, John Chapman, that's going to be on that plaque. At least another, I mean, there's, we've had combat controllers who've received silver stars, a lot of bronze stars, obviously, but silver stars, and these are heroes. And there's so many heroes at Mount Soledad on those walls, those plaques to, to those who've given so much. 
it's interesting, but for, for Mount Soledad, when they started it, you, you can honor anybody who served. So it, it's not necessarily somebody who was killed in action. There are plenty of us who are on that wall just because our family members, my wife, Petrina, specifically decided that they wanted to honor our service. And I'm very grateful to be a part of it because that cross and, and saving that cross on that war memorial means a lot to me. Uh, people ask me about that and uh, I'd be glad to I'd be glad to talk more about it because I think it is so important, this whole war on religion in this country, taking God out of the classroom, taking God out of the workplace. You know, atheists seem to feel like it's important to attack people who believe in God. I don't think people who believe in God think it's important to attack atheists. <laughs> I hope not because that would be horrible. But... That's what happened. And I, I, I think Mount Soledad, I, I don't know if it's ground zero, but it, it certainly is important. And as a Jew, I've got to think back to the Christians who sacrificed so much and took the risk of helping the Jews in, you know, in Germany and Poland and in Europe in World War, World War Two, And when their religious freedom and the symbols of their religion are threatened, because that's just the start of it. When are they, is it, if they were able to take down the cross of Mount Soledad, how long before they would be able to take down the cross at every military cemetery in the country? That's called the slippery slope. And I, I think it was so important to say if the city of La Jolla at that time approved that design, who are we to go? It's like tearing down these statues. It's just like reinventing history. And it's, it's, not, it's not healthy. It's inappropriate. And when it comes to religious symbols, it's just dead on wrong. So I'm not saying I'd go in there and say, hey, we should design this war memorial, it should have a cross. I'm not saying I'd say that any more than I'd say this war memorial should have a Star of David. But clearly, there are plenty of plaques on that memorial, like mine, that do have a Star of David on, on their plaques. And that's religious freedom. That's what this country was founded on. That's our First Amendment. And so the reunion on Mount Soledad, not the reunion, but the celebration of the plaque on Mount Soledad will begin promptly, and I mean promptly, at 11 o'clock on, on this Wednesday. And um, just so you know, on Thursday, the whole crew we're going to ride to las vegas and in las vegas on thursday so on thursday we get to las vegas and then there's a couple of things thursday night it'll be a lot of camaraderie meeting people coming in there'll be stuff on friday and then saturday night is the big banquet and um 
just looking forward. I, I hope I can make it. I don't know if I, it's just, there's so much going on. May 1st, we're going to have a special guest on uh, Rolling with New York Mike, Woody. And I think Robert Pandy will be with him from the Buffalo Chip. So I'm, I'm trying to prepare for that. Not that there's a lot to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to. Uh, it's just it's just a lot going on. So, yeah, I already talked about the MRF and bikers inside the Beltway. It's it's so important that that that's I I I know I'm not going to make it this year. One year I I I hope I will. Like I said, I've done it before, but all these things are so important, and it's so important when. How do you connect riding? motorcycles, specifically Harleys. Now, I know that my buddy Mark Novot's coming down with Lee, riding down from Washington, from Tacoma. Lee rode to um, Mark's house yesterday, and they left this morning, and Lee's on an Indian motorcycle. But it's still an American motorcycle. There's a certain symbolism about that. Now, I know there are guys that ride all kinds of brands. But for me, it's that American brand, the Harley-Davidson motorcycle. And yeah, I mean, Indian's there. It's a new brand. It's not the old Indian. They can lie all they want and talk about 1901. They went out of business in 1953. And I, I think I'd feel a lot better about that company if, if they wouldn't keep on trying to say that they've been there since 1901. Because they haven't been. But... Nonetheless, they're an American brand, and I appreciate it. And there is something very special, more special, in my opinion, than just being on two wheels. Although you go to a Patriot God, right, and Patriot Gods will be there on Wednesday as well. But you go to a Patriot God ride, which is so important. And there's a good percentage of these guys on BMWs, Hondas, or whatever. And that's fine. I just feel if it was all American, it would have even more of an impact, at least on me. I I believe that part of the battle, part of the politics that are ongoing is to be able to bring back manufacturing to this country and celebrating manufacturing in this country. And I think when we talk about Rolling Thunder, of course, Rolling Thunder is named after that the Vietnam Rolling Thunder was the bombing, the whole bombing thing that went on, Operation Rolling Thunder. But Rolling Thunder, for the event at every Memorial Day, is after the noise made by the Harleys to bring attention to the POW and MIA issue. And now add to that the issue of veterans and active duty suicides, where we're losing what was 22 a day, every day, to suicide. That number's up. What it is, um, how do you define it? Uh, it's, it's, it's up. It used to be 22. It's more. So we're, we're, we're making that noise that we're famous for, that American loud, that loud, proud American. Yeah, you can call it ugly American. I read the book. But, but you know, in your face, loud, proud American, that's that motorcycle noise that we make to bring attention to these issues, the POW, MIAs. And that's not an old issue. We're talking about Afghanistan now. It came up again. It's relevant. It's relevant again. 
right here, right now, because of what, who dreamed that it would come up in Afghanistan? Who dreamed it? I, 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 I never would have. I, I never would in my wildest imagination. Because I believe that this country would, would do something as horribly wrong and stupid as that. And politically, we want to speak politically. How can you sit there, watch your television, or maybe you have no idea. But I got a feeling if you listen to this podcast, you do. How can you or any of your friends or acquaintances or anything else sit there and listen to the denial of the Biden administration and not be outraged at them, you know, casting the blame on the Trump policies? It, it's totally obscene that they would do that. I think it's an impeachable offense, period. Not only the actions that they took, but lying about it today. This guy that they have representing them on television, you know, the um, Pentagon guy, whatever his name is, I don't even want to say it anymore. He comes on there and says, oh, it was the Trump policies. Oh, it wasn't, you know, we didn't, oh, we're proud of how many plane loads we were able to, to get out of there. We're proud of how we handled Afghanistan. I'd, I'd throw him in prison just for saying that. What a, what a traitorous comment, treasonous. It, it is to say something like that in the face of the reality that we've all seen. The deaths, the, de the deaths clearly of 13 Americans, but also that family when a Biden that went to flex his muscles and prove that, you know, he's not going to allow the uh, terrorists to get away with it. So what's he do the next day? He kills and murders an innocent family of 10 who were supporting us, three adults and seven children. We, we've, we've never even investigated that. And they come on and they, they're telling us, and, and we're going to look at that with a straight face without, you know, everybody breaking their televisions. It's just so wrong. So wrong. But that's, um, that's what, that's what's going on. That's the, the kind of, kind of things that, that we see politics-wise, we have hearings on the border, the Hunter Biden laptop. I mean, hearings on the border. They took these guys who were on horseback, said they were whipping, beating up, you know, the people like, they compared them to the slave owners whipping their slaves. That was disproven. They weren't doing anything of the sort. They were, they were just doing their jobs. And yet, they, they all ended up on some sort of administrative leave. No one's apologized. We're being lied to every day about the border. And, and now we got to sit here and wait for the expiration of Title 42, which is what says before someone comes into the country, they have to make sure they don't have COVID. I, hopefully it says some other diseases as well, but just COVID, that goes away when COVID goes away on May 11th. And there are... Just whatever the numbers are, thousands more just waiting to come in, gathering a gathering storm of illegal. They're all illegal and they're all aliens. These are not immigrants. These, these aren't this. I don't know how the, the legitimacy that the Democrats seem to put 
on these people coming here, running for asylum, as if asylum has no criteria except wanting to leave one country for another. That's not the way it is. And so people that want to leave Nicaragua or leave Venezuela or leave wherever, Cuba, but they're also coming from over 150 or 160 different countries from around the world, including China, all over the world, from all over the world, they're coming here. And they, they get here somehow by boat, by plane, I don't know how. They get to wherever, South America, Central America, eventually up through Mexico, across the southern border, and to the United States. And we are letting them come in across that border, unrestricted. And, and it's, it's crazy, the millions who've come in since Biden, over five million since Biden, two and a half years. It's, it's just crazy, it's wrong, it's gotta be fixed. And we've had these hearings on the border. How about the hearing on London, the Hunter Biden laptop? The lie that if it were, the, the lie that it was Russian disinformation. First you had the Hunter, the Hunter Biden laptop uh, in, it, in, its, in and of itself as an issue. Had so much information about Hunter Biden and how his dad, Joe Biden, enabled him to get the jobs he got, get all this money and split it with the family. Forget about that. When they found that laptop and they came out before the last election, before the 2020 election, that Joe Biden used in the debate with Donald Trump, that it was Russian disinformation. And they had proof because they had a letter to that lie, that effect, signed by 51 former Intel organizations, that now we find out that letter was put together by Anthony Blinken, the, the current Secretary of State. Of course, that's how he got his job as Secretary of State, because he put together that letter, which pretty much bought the Biden, bought Biden the election. He was able to use that in the debate with Donald Trump and use it in, in the campaign. That not only did they take lemons and make lemonade, yeah, we have the Hunter Biden laptop, with all this info, oh, it's disinformation, Russian disinformation. Paint Donald Trump with that. Hey, we have a great way of denigrating Donald Trump and scaring the voters away from voting for him. That was it. That letter signed by 51 well-known former Intel officers put together by Anthony Blinken, knowing it was a lie. And now they're in pr there's proof that it was a lie. I mean, the, you know, the, the hearings on leaving Afghanistan, we want to see this. I, I mean, it's sickening to see the, the Democrats lie and deny and cover up and blame Trump. But that's what's going on. And so, well, on one hand, we celebrate these heroes. But remember, they died for our country. We celebrate them, but they died not for these politicians to lie, but for us to do something about these politicians who lie like this. We need to do something. This is, this is a call to action. Pete Buttigieg says highways are racist. Are you going to you're going to accept that highways are racist? Why? Why? How does where does he come up with this illogical logic? How can a highway be racist? Because what? It goes through a black neighborhood? You know, the National Highways decimated Route 66. Route 66. I took Route 66 in 1966. How frickin' ironic. When I came back from Vietnam, my buddy John Thomas was waiting for me 
at uh, Shaw Air Force Base, South Carolina. I got back. He was discharged. He waited for me for a few weeks, knowing I was on my way back at some point. He had a 65 Bonneville convertible, white, and we jumped in it. He said, but all my friends are sure. Mike, it's a, it's a cluster. Nobody knows nothing. Just go ahead. Whenever you sign in, you sign in. Jumped in that car, drove across the country on Route 66. That's right. That's before before the highways were complete. You couldn't you couldn't take Highway 10 or 40 or 70 across. We Route 66. That's the only way to get across, and that's what we did. And that was in 1966. And I can tell you from personal experience, yes, it was a colorful, somewhat colorful, you know, way to you know, tra- traverse the country, go right through America. And there were businesses all along <clears throat> the route. <laughs> it was little stores, little restaurants in little towns. But there were vast swaths of wilderness in between. Okay, it wasn't like one exit to the next and there's a gas station here or there. You you made sure you topped off whenever you can, because the next place may be 60 or 80 miles down the road or more. So, no, I can't be more def- definitive. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Who remembers? But I, but I have that, you know, that sense in my, you know, there's a certain, I don't know if you call it a vision, but whatever. I mean, that's the way it was. So now, you, you know, you keep hearing, oh, they, we used to have Route 66, and when they built the highway system, it, it decimated all these little places. Well, guess what? It, it allowed people to travel from one end of the country to the other <clears throat> in a much more safer and effective way. And businesses grew on those, on those freeways, and, that, and that's great for, for those places. For the Route 66 place, Route 66 has been romanticized. There's people that come from all over world today to travel across America on that old legendary Route 66. Yeah. And there's hundreds of miles of nothing in between the restaurant here and the restaurant there. So, you know, if you build a freeway, a highway, whatever, and it, and it, it goes through a, a neighborhood or doesn't, how is it racist? Was building the highway system racist to whoever lived on Route 66? No. This is crazy. With, and, then, and then, okay, so I think it was in L.A. People, no, it was some other town, Oregon or someplace, that there's this ecod- e- epidemic, which there is all over, of people stealing catalytic converters out of cars. Now, I don't know what gives them the value, why it, it is so valuable, that people are stealing them, and it is an epidemic. It's happening in my neighborhood in San Diego right now. My friends are talking about it. It's going on. And this politician in L- wherever it was is screaming that it's the manufacturer, the car manufacturer's fault. Toyota, she said, specifically. I don't know why. Don't get me wrong. Maybe it's just as bad with Ford or Chevy. But she said Toyota. That's all I know. I heard her say in whatever state assembly or Congress or wherever she said it, that it's the manufacturers. It's Toyota's fault because they make it too easy to steal. Are you kidding? You know, I remember when there was a, all these, these rash of, of um, 
of thefts and things on the, the subway in New York back in the 70s. And they said it was your fault if you wear a chain, a gold. We, if you're wearing a gold chain in the subway, you're contributing to the crime rate. <laughs> yeah, the victim is the problem, not the perpetrator, the victim. And that's where I guess we were where we are. Just the way it's got to stop. It's got to stop. And now, what is, what's he saying now? Mortgages are being given to people with lower credit ratings. Give a lower mortgage percent to, to the people with worse credit because it makes sense that they have bad credit. They need a lower rate. People with good credit can afford a higher rate. Yeah, you're going to live with that logic? That's the logic of this Biden administration. You know, we could talk about the Green New Deal. We, we could, there's a lot we could talk about. But, but I, I promised last week, and I'm going to tell you, we're going to do it next week. That's life. But we're going to talk about presidential politics. <laughs> We've got to. I mean, by the way, the, the field has narrowed. We had Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, Mike Pence, I don't know the Christie Noam, no. Tulsi, Tim Scott, and Larry Elder, Asa Hutchinson. Now, look, we're going to talk about it. I think when you, Trump DeSantis is it. But these other names are important names. These are people throwing their hat in the ring to be interviewed by the American public for a place on the, on the president's list. For, for his cabinet, that they're interviewing for a job on the cabinet. Maybe some of them interviewing for Mike for for vice president. Mike Pompeo took his name out. Everybody was waiting for Mike Pompeo to jump in there, and um, he said no. And I salute them for that. But he also, you know, these others, Tim Scott, Larry Elder. I saw Tim Scott today. <laughs> they show the clip of him in um, in Iowa. <laughs> yeah, he, he came out there and he goes. Yeah, our educational system, our schools and this and that. We need more ABCs and less CRTs. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. Tim Scott's a good guy. He's a terrific senator. I, I don't think I'm ready to vote him for president, but I'd like to see him in the cabinet. I'd like to see him secretary of, of something. And he's a young guy. There's, but there's a lot of these people. I don't get the Asa Hutchinson thing. <laughs> But I do get the Larry Elder thing. Let's um, let's let's talk about it. Meanwhile, uh, we got this th this week the Mount Soledad, and then the ride to Vegas, and then when we get back, uh, I'm gonna be here with Woody from the Buffalo Chip, and then just a few weeks later, boom, we're ready to ride to Rolling to Remember, and Rolling to Remember is gonna be epic uh, this year. I I believe it's it's going to be absolutely epic. So if there's any way you can make Rolling to Remember, please don't forget. <laughs> I'm New York Mike. Thanks for listening to Rolling with New York Mike. I'm out. Thanks for listening to Rolling with New York Mike. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to keep this podcast rolling.